Welcome to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women. My name is Caitlin and I'm your host. Today's episode is called Dr. Kara Cooney on Ancient Egyptian Female Pharaoh Hatshepsut, Lessons from the Woman Who Was King in a Man's World. Last year, I visited Hatshepsut's mortuary temple known as Dair al-Bari in Egypt and was profoundly awed by the scale, the beauty, and the symmetry of the structure. It made me wonder, who is this woman who had the power to create this monument around 3,500 years ago when kings were almost always men? So, I turned to the world's leading expert on Hatshepsut to find out more about this extraordinary female pharaoh. Dr. Kara Cooney is one of the most famous modern faces of ancient Egypt. She is an Egyptologist, archaeologist, author, and professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA. She has hosted TV shows on the Discovery Channel, including Out of Egypt and Egypt's Lost Queen, and written top-selling books, including the 2018 book, When Women Ruled the World, and the 2015 book, The Women Who Would Be King, Hatshepsut's Rise to Power in Ancient Egypt, which focuses on the subject of our podcast today, Queen or King Hatshepsut. She can be called both. Hatshepsut created the tallest obelisk in the world at the Temple of Karnak, which still stands today in Rome. She lived from roughly 1507 to 1458 BC and ruled Egypt from an estimated 1478 until her death. How and why did she come to power when typically only men ruled? How did she keep her power? What sacrifices does a woman who wants to rule the world have to make? What can we as women learn from her about our modern world? Kara has Irish-Italian heritage and grew up in Houston. She obtained a bachelor in German from the University of Texas and a PhD at John Hopkins University in Egyptology. She co-curated the exhibition Tutankhamun and the Golden Age of the Pharaohs at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in 2005. Her specialties include economies, craft production, and coffin studies in ancient cultures. She has spent years at excavation sites in Egypt studying things in person. Kara currently lives in LA with her husband Remy. Some of the courses she teaches at UCLA include Women and Power in Ancient World, and Art and Architecture of Ancient Egypt, Pre-Dynastic Period to New Kingdom. So if you happen to be a current or future UCLA student, you're in luck! She also has an upcoming 2020 National Geographic Live Tour of the U.S. to discuss When Women Ruled the World, which you can learn more about on her website, karakuni.squarespace.com. Thank you for being a guest on the show today, Kara. I'm so nervous and so excited to speak to you, so thank you. My pleasure. (laughs) Can you introduce our listeners to Hatshepsut? Who was she? Hatshepsut was a female king of the 18th dynasty. She started her career as a king's daughter and then became king's wife and king's sister because she married her half-brother. 
And she had a daughter. She never had a son. So she never became king's mother. And one of her nephews was promoted to the kingship at an extraordinarily young age, demanding that someone act as regent on his behalf and make all of the decisions. And that someone ended up being Hatshepsut. So she was regent for seven years. And then she used that regency to step into the, the kingship itself within seven years of her nephew's reign. So she is Egypt's most successful female king and one of the, if not the best example of female rule from the ancient world. You mentioned that Hatshepsut was the daughter of a king. Why couldn't she be the female pharaoh and rule without her nephew? Because we live in a patriarchy and patriarchies demand that men rule. And there are a variety of reasons for this. I I think this is something that we go about our lives and just accept that men end up being kings and, and not women. I suppose there are people that live in a fragmented Europe who are from Britain who are like, well, why can't a female be king? But in most other European countries, the the male, the next male in line is going to be king. In most countries or nations or regional states that have the king marrying more than one female, it's always going to be male power. Male power is, in terms of biological success, a man can have 365 babies outside of his body. A woman can have one, maybe two if she has twins a year. So to put a female into the center of the wheel of power is very problematic for succession. Her chances of having a baby, you know, after a certain amount of time lessen. A man can have babies until he's 70. At least Charlie Chaplin had a baby in his <laughs> 70s. It is possible. So there seems to have been no thought to Hatshepsut serving as king, even though she names herself the eldest uh, daughter of the I. That's just not the way patriarchies work. Patriarchies work to put the next male in line. Hatshepsut only became king because there was some problem, there was some issue that demanded she be king. And the only reason she was allowed to be king and to stay on as king is because there was another king occupying the throne. If she had tried to do so alone, she would not have been successful. And Hatshepsut must have known this. We know this. Hatshepsut never served alone. That's a very good point. She was never just the pharaoh on her own. She always had a co-king the whole time that she was in power. She always served with someone else. So even when she wasn't king in her own right, she was regent alongside this boy king. And then when she did become king in her own right, he was her co-king the whole time. And when she died, he was still king and he was the one that buried her in state. If we, we use a, a more crass and patriarchal part of our minds, you can imagine Hatshepsut maybe wanting to have the kid assassinated, removed so that she could rule on her own. But Hatshepsut must have known just as we know that if she had tried to do this, then she would have been removed from power shortly after herself by another man. There are other Egyptian women that that knew this, too, and Cleopatra is one of them. Cleopatra also never ruled alone. And even when she was sitting upon the throne of Egypt, seemingly alone, she reached out for partnership from Rome and worked with Julius Caesar. And then when he was assassinated, worked with Mark Antony and then worked through her son. So Cleopatra knew, like Hatshepsut, that in a patriarchy, you need a male presence upon the throne. So even when you're the most powerful woman in the world, you can only stay in that position of power 
when you're somehow related to the man in your life, the father, the brother, the son, who also shares the power is what Absolutely. it sounds like. Yeah. And this is an uncomfortable truth that I think we need to realize when we look back in the ancient world, I'm not here to write revisionist history. I'm not here to tell a story that, that makes us feel good. The title of my book, When Women Ruled the World, is rather sly. It implies that women ruled the world, and they did. And here are six women that I'm going to tell you about who actually held real positions of power, formal positions of power. But in each case, there is some mitigating factor that tells us that these women were not changing the patriarchy, but fitting themselves to it. And as such, they are there as placeholders. They're not there as any sort of movers of feminist history. So in a sense, none of them came to power because they were the most capable or competent. They all came to power because there was somehow a bit of an opening with the men around them who would normally rule. I think it's a bit of both. One, there was a crisis of some kind. And then number two, they were the most capable ones at the time. I think the other thing to remember is that Egypt is this very strange, risk-averse place, unlike Mesopotamia or Italy or Greece or Syria. This was a place where the people, the elites, the stakeholders didn't want to compete for that power, didn't raise armies for the most part to compete for that power, wanted a peaceful transition. It was such a wealthy place. They just wanted to keep all their stuff and wanted to move mm -hmm. from one situation of wealth to another. And the best way to do that was to, when there was a crisis, when there was some problem with the succession, the king dies too early, leaving a young boy who's too um, inexperienced to rule on his own. The Egyptians knew that inviting a woman into power was the best solution for them. Because a woman within a patriarchy is going to be demanded to step back. She's not going to be able to take power and she's not going to compete with that young prince or king who is occupying the position before his time. She is more likely, if she's his mother especially, to coddle him, work with him, raise him into the kingship. And then when the time is right, step back from power. If they invite the uncle, the brother of the dead king, to come and rule on that kid's behalf instead. Well, we all know how men work in the patriarchy. They compete with each other incessantly. Chances are that uncle's going to kill the young kid, take the power for himself, and start a new dynastic line. This was not in the best interest of the Egyptian elites. They mm -hmm. chose women systematically when there was a crisis to be risk-averse, to keep their wealth and to keep the status quo, to keep everything going the way they wanted to. So in that way, it's even more of a tragedy that the women in Egypt are used to maintain a, a patriarchal elite succession on the whole to keep the whole system going. One of the things I took away from your book was how efficient Hatshepsut was as a ruler, actually. She did an amazing job and she was, you know, a rapid builder. What seems unusual is that she didn't give over the regency to her nephew when he got older, she actually became co-king instead. It's a strange thing that she actually became king at all because she did so in the III's year seven, which was when he was about nine or a little older. The, the ages of these people are not completely clear, but she did so 
when the kid was getting more mature, more able to potentially rule on his own behalf, though I have a nine-year-old son. I don't want a nine-year-old son ruling <laughs> all of Egypt. So, but something must have been happening. You know, she'd made it through the worst parts of this young boy's kingship. And he's now becoming older and wiser, one would think. But the Egyptians don't tell us the real aspects of their politics. Everything from the Egyptian world, if you go to a museum, if you go to Egypt itself, if you go into a temple, everything from the Egyptian world is idealized. It is perfected. They're not telling you what the situation was, warts and all. They're telling you what it is like as they need it to be seen. So something happened that was wrong. Maybe the young king was sick. Maybe he had smallpox and a fever. Maybe, maybe he had malaria. Maybe he'd fallen off his chariot. Maybe there were elites that were pushing Hatshepsut's regency out and she needed to claim it in a more overt way. There's a lot here that we don't know, but there's something going on that means that she has to claim the kingship. When she does that, it's irrevocable. She is king until she dies. And it seems she dies a natural death. It seems she's buried in state, but she's there ruling alongside this kid. And then, as you say, when he becomes older, when he's 16, 17 years of age, she stays on the throne and he's there in second position behind her, even though he came to the throne first. And it is um, a, a very interesting situation. And one wonders what it was like in the heart of the palace when Tutmos III and Hatshepsut would speak with each other, when their advisors would speak with each other. Well, if there was competition, if there was support, if there was hatred, we don't know. We don't know any of this. But we have to work with the, the circumstantial evidence that we're given. That is so well said. It almost seems like the Egyptians, they were really concerned about the afterlife. They were concerned about their image while they were alive. And the records they left of us were sort of the image that they wanted to leave. Yeah, everything's perfected. And there's a reason for this. I mean, when, when I was talking about Egypt being risk averse, wanting the status quo to continue on forever, in many ways, Egypt is still like that. It's geographically inclined to be like that. And so you, you see a system of rule in Egypt that's unlike anywhere else on earth, a divine kingship where the human leader who's occupying the throne is not thought to be anointed by God, is thought to be a God, is called a God. And so unlike Greece or Rome, where it's super competitive, in Egypt, it's actually not that competitive. And so you're able to create this fiction of a kingship that is divine. And Hatshepsut then uses that to her benefit to maintain her position of power. It becomes very difficult for the historian because all we see is a perfected propaganda. And we then have to try to pull the veils aside from this and, and see what the Egyptians are not showing us. It's very hard to study authoritarian regimes. It's very hard to figure out what actually is going on behind that curtain. I love the way you put it, that it's like propaganda. If you think about it like that, then it's like, wow, that makes it even harder to use the fragments, the records of what we have to see what was going on, because it's not always that they were telling the whole story. They were telling the story that the people in power wanted to have told. Yeah, and, and a lot of the historian Egyptologists whom I know don't see it that way. They don't see this as something that's involving as much sleight of hand or involving as much subterfuge and would actually avoid using the word propaganda outright. 
and I just had an argument, a good argument, happy argument, with, uh, <laughs> some of some of my graduate students about the word propaganda itself, about whether or not it could be used to discuss and, and describe ancient Egypt. They were saying that, yes, indeed, it could. And I was saying, well, propaganda is a word to convince a, a multitude of people. And in Egypt, you only need to convince the top 2% of this divine mm-hmm. kingship and get everyone to go along with it. And yet propaganda is that word that I think is the most, it hits us in the belly. You know, we understand immediately and viscerally what propaganda means. And I think then it, it might be the correct word to use <laughs> because it, it is a word that stops the people living in Egypt from seeing the power that is held over them. And it stops even the historian of Egypt from seeing the way the kings wielded that power. Well, you make a good point about the divinity connection. And I think when a lot of people think about ancient Egypt and read into it, they're a little bit confused by the incest that happened among pharaohs and and queens. And also Hatshepsut married her brother. Could you talk a little bit about why this was a common practice and why this was so important for upholding the status quo? Incest is a really interesting one. And I I do discuss this in my book and I make the startling statement that when incest is at its height, female power is also at its height in ancient Egypt. The two go hand in hand and there's a reason for it. There are open societies and there are closed societies. There are competitive societies and there are societies that turn towards the status quo and that are risk averse. And Egypt is largely the latter. They are a closed society of very few elites who are in the room where it happens. And they, they like things to just continue on without too much trouble. If that's your situation, then imagine your harem, right? You have a number of wives. Maybe the king has a hundred wives and the elites are sending their daughters to be in the harem to maybe become the mother of the next king. And if you're an elite at court, And you see the products of that harem and you see um, some children being born to a a beautiful girl from the provinces who is not genetically connected to the king and her son. Maybe she has two sons and they're these gorgeous, strong, brilliant children. And you think, wow, that's going to be a great future king. And then you see the king has also had offspring with his half sisters or full sisters. And those children are not so beautiful to look upon. And maybe they're misshapen. Maybe they're actually cognitively challenged in some way. They're, they're not as smart as those other kids. You would think it's a no brainer to pick the beautiful children as your next king. Right. But you have to put it within the closed, non-competitive system. If you're there as one of the courtiers and you're one of very few courtiers and you know that you've got control of the treasury and you're doing well and your family is wealthy and your sons are going to be wealthy after you. Everything's going well. You know that if that provincial girl, if her son is made king and she becomes king's mother, all of her family is going to come into the court, have positions, new positions of power and potentially sweep you aside and sweep all of your compatriots in the court aside. So when the choice is made for which son is going to be chosen as the next king, a situation that we know very little about, we we don't know how these decisions were made, really. There is more incentive for people to choose the incestuous product because it means they get to keep their stuff, keep their positions, keep their power than not. And they'll sweep that, that healthy kid aside. The Egyptians weren't the only ones 
to engage in incestuous matches to keep power. Charles II of the Habsburg dynasty was known for his overly large head and giant jaw and needed a special pillow and could barely chew because the guy was was a product of such incest. And if you read about Queen Victoria and the beginnings of World War One, these are all cousins inbred fighting each other. Um, you read about the last czar of Russia and hemophilia and the kinds of diseases that, that incest amongst cousins, at least, could create. These are things that people in power, these are, these are strategies that people engage in to keep that power. So the Egyptian incestuous system is just a strategy of keeping power, nothing more. So it was a way for the, the 2% to make sure that the status quo was maintained and outsiders of beautiful children didn't come in and usurp their position in the court. It was really then uh, to everybody in power's benefit that the king and the queen, they kept everything as much within the family as possible. And ideally, the king would have with his, you know, official queen then sons and daughters and they could continue on and as, you know, future king and future queen. But it didn't always work out like that, as in the case with Hatshepsut and with her lack of a son. Can you talk a little bit about how the lack of having a male heir was also part of what propelled her into the position that she was in? It's a strange twist of fate that something that must have in the moment been perceived of as a tragedy, not having a son, having had only a daughter, would be the very thing that enabled her to become king. Because if she had had a son, then that son would almost certainly have been chosen as the next king because she's the most pure blood wife of the king, his half-sister. She's got purer blood than her husband, Tutmos II, did. So it's almost certain that her son would have been king next. She would have been king's mother. And as king's mother, acting as a regent, there's no need for her to step in as king alongside him. There's no evidence of a mother-son kingship pair until Cleopatra. It does happen eventually. Cleopatra will do it with Ptolemy the 15th. And you will have a mother-son co-kingship, but you don't see it in the 18th dynasty. Those mothers had great power, but they didn't need to take on the kingship. Hatshepsut, it seems, needed to take on the kingship because she was only aunt to her nephew king. She was one step removed. And she probably also felt that she could do it emotionally. I'm a mother of a nine-year-old. If my nine-year-old is doing really well at something, I don't want to take it from him. I want to encourage him and help him do better. Now, I'm not saying that I would be a total jerk to my nephew, depending on what my relationship with my nephew is, but I will tell you that human nature, one step removed within the family genetically, means that I'm less inclined to work on that kid's behalf and not to take the credit for myself. Genetics are super important in human behavior and in human history. The more I feel that my child's success reflects on me and is my success, the less competitive I will be against that child. So I'm gonna work for that boy. The more I feel that child's success is not my success and it is genetically removed from me, the more I might compete with that child. So in Hatshepsut's case, that child that is a nephew and she then actively competes with him. We can't see it as anything less. She becomes co-king alongside him. And so she steps into power and claims much of what he had. If it had been her son, I doubt she would have done that. That's a very good point. 
it is really interesting that even as he was an adult, let's say he was 20 years old, he was still co-ruling with his aunt and he was actually the junior king. She had to set it up this way. Even though she comes to power second, she has to set it up so that she's the older one, the wiser one, in the position of power as primary king. The Egyptians had two kings on the throne simultaneously a great deal. This is not the, the first time we've seen such a thing. So Hatshepsut's able to step into a position of two kings, a co-kingship that has already been instituted before, but she has to do so with a great deal of strategy and make sure that when she's shown, she's shown first. She's not shown taller when they're depicted side by side. She shows him as a twin of herself, but there is something that she has to do that tells us that she is a bit on the back foot. She doesn't have as much power as we think. And that is, she must depict herself as a man. She must depict herself at least in two dimensions and eventually in three-dimensional statuary as well, as if she's a man just like her nephew Tutmos III as he grows into his manhood. She can't show herself as a woman in primary position of power. That is a, a very interesting point and gives us a great deal of insight into Egyptian kingship and into the patriarchy. How do her depictions of herself in images throughout Egypt change during the time of her reign? She shows herself at the beginning, before she becomes king at all, as a queen, as we would expect, wearing a dress, wearing a, a crown. She's also the high priestess of the god Amun-Re, and she shows herself in, in that position as well. Then when she becomes regent, she continues on as priestess and queen, depicting herself as a dress. It's when she becomes king that she's really, she, she's caught between a masculinity and a femininity. Obviously, she's a feminine person, but she's inhabiting a very masculine role. So in her first depictions as king in two dimensions on her relief, she shows herself wearing a dress, but she's wearing a very short masculinizing wig. And she's wearing ram's horns. You can't get more masculine than ram's horns. I mean, it's, it's a giant penile sort of symbol. <laughs> she puts that on her head. And she's, she's showing herself as a, a masculinizing female entity. Her statuary as king shows more of a process from femininity to masculinity. So she, she shows herself wearing a dress and then the Nemi's headdress, that striped headdress that Tutankhamun is wearing in his funerary mask. And so she's layering on a masculine element. And then she, you can see that something is not quite right. She's got to show herself as a more masculine entity. And there's a very famous statue in the Metropolitan Museum of Art that shows her with a bare chest and yet the markers of breasts and yet there's no nipples, which a naked chest would show male or female. And it seems to be she's showing herself with a bound chest, but there is still the hint of breasts there. And yet it seems she's not wearing a shirt. So she's she's showing herself as a, a bare chested king in a sense. And yet her feminine person is still there. Her image is her face is so gracile and feminine and her arms and shoulders are very delicate and narrow. She looks female. And then in the next series of statues, you can see she's like, fine, I guess I have to go all in and become masculine. And her jaw is masculine. She's got these buff biceps and pectoral muscles. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's just, she's become a man 
in the end with her statuary and her relief in two dimension shows the same. She goes all in with a with a masculine form and she is indistinguishable from her nephew Tutmos the third at that time. It's amazing that she felt that in order to consolidate her power or to justify her reign, she had to display herself as a man. Nobody would have actually thought who was living at that time that she was a man. No, nobody would have thought that she was a man. But I think that we do this in the world today without realizing it. Think about how as women's power has increased politically and economically around the world, how women wear men's clothes, what was perceived a hundred years ago as men's clothes outright. If somebody came in a time machine and was plopped down in the United States or in Berlin in 2019, they'd look around and go, oh my God, these women are all wearing trousers. What's happened? <laughs> They're wearing jackets. They're wear- what is going on? Women have masculinized in their person. We don't wear things that constrict us. We've abandoned the corset. We don't highlight our femininity in the same way. We do so in a more masculinizing way. And when you're getting ready as a woman for an interview or for a board meeting or for a, you know some important moment in your career, the dress of a woman becomes extraordinarily important. If a woman is going to show cleavage or breasts in that moment, she's going to do so strategically. She's got to be very careful about <laughs> how she does that. It, most of the time, a woman is going to cover up those feminine parts of herself not necessarily bind them, but diminish them and hide them. And yet she'll always have colored hair. I don't know of many politicians that don't color their hair who are older females if if she might go gray. Her makeup will be perfect, but it can't be too feminine. There's a weird push and pull today in, in female garments for women who are taking power. And so I encourage you and your audience to look around with a, with a more critical eye to how women try to gain power through their dress, through their walk, through um, the way they talk, through deepening of voices. These are all things that we're doing without even realizing it, doing exactly what Hatshepsut did, trying to fit ourselves to the patriarchy rather than demanding an entirely new system. So what you're saying is when a woman will downplay her femininity today and wear something that's a bit more neutral or even masculine, in a way, she's doing the same thing Hatshepsut did 3,500 years ago, which is trying to dress in a way that will la- allow her to be taken seriously by men who won't take perhaps outward displays of or excessive displays of femininity as seriously. Yes. And then we need to think about what it is it about femininity that we disassociate from power, that we think of as being so problematic to power. What is it about something soft and feminine and frilly or contained. Emotional. Yes, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so that that emotional connection is something that we find must be disconnected from power, except for the emotion of anger and the emotions of aggression. Those emotions we consider as powerful and something that can keep us safe, something that that we want to hold to. So you see women dressing in hard lines and hard edges and shoulder pads and taking that softness away. These these are things, wearing black, wearing dark colors, not wearing light colors. These are things that we associate with outright power within a patriarchal system. I do a lot of public speaking and I end a lot of my talks and I discuss this in my book as well. The image is, is there as well. 
with a series of emojis. And it's something I saw on Facebook. A friend posted it. And it says a man's day and a woman's day. And under a man's day, it's the man wakes up and he's got a bland half smile the whole day. And then he goes to sleep. And it's like a series of 20 emojis with the same face. And in the woman's day, it's happy, sad, angry, (laughs) depressed, crying, every emoticon that you can imagine for different emotions. And, you know, a woman's day. So her day is up and down and all around. And and you don't know what her emotion is going to be from one moment to the next. And I present that slide and it gets a huge laugh because we see the truth in it from an evolutionary biological perspective. And we see the truth in it from our own stereotypes of binary genders of male versus female. I'm not trying to gender essentialize. I'm not trying to stereotype. We're the ones that have created these two genders. We're the ones that have said you're either male or female when the biological reality is actually much, much richer and occurs along a gradient. There are many females who are more masculine, many males who are more feminine. But we perceive that feminine emotionality as detrimental to power, as dangerous, as problematic, as unreliable. And until we start to see that emotional connection as exactly what pulls the hand back from the trigger, as exactly what makes somebody not murder their whole family and then themselves, as exactly what causes people to think twice about going into war, until we start to see that feminine emotionality as something to hold to, something to prioritize, we will continue to buy into this patriarchy and, and buy into the old way of power, just like Hatshepsut did, just like Tawasret did, just like countless other Egyptian females did, and we do today. Instead of saying we need a bigger piece of the pie, we need a different pie. Well, in some ways, we have the opportunity to speak up in ways that women didn't previously had. They couldn't really make their voices heard because the system was so much more enclosed. I, I feel like nowadays we at least have more of an opportunity to make our voices heard. We do. But th- this is another thing I do in my public speaking. I spend the first 10 minutes proving to the audience that women don't have the power that they think they have. And it's a depressing reality, but it's something that needs to be discussed. And it's something that we as a society, I feel, are discussing for the very first time. This is the very first time that females are able to be breadwinners of a family more than men, to out-earn college degrees more than men. It's happening on a grassroots level. At the lower end of society, you see female power growing and growing. But at the top of society, where the money is, those two percenters, there you see the patriarchy holding strong. See very little female power. Female CEOs are in the single digits around the world. And if economics are the power of the world, then females really have none. And political power in most countries, most places have not had a female leader of state. And parliamentary power is generally around 20% or less for most countries in the United States as well. That's not 50%. If feminism is nothing more than 50% of the population gets 50% of the power, we're a long way from that. And when you look at the top 2%, those penthouse dwellers of New York, those people (laughs) that that are able to give away, you know, a billion dollars to a university or to a hospital, right? Those people are ruled by men and the women circle around those men in their feminine garb, in their corsets of, you know, Spanx, in their, in their competition to get to that man. They flirt around that man trying to get his power. They don't try to claim the power for the most part themselves. 
And until things start to change at the top, I don't see much change for women in societies as a whole. So I'm, I see change at the bottom, but I'm still quite cynical in what we see as a step forward for women. And let me be more plain about this. Just because a female occupies a role, just because Maggie Thatcher was prime minister or Theresa May was prime minister or Angela Merkel was chancellor, does not mean that it's changing things patriarchally. It means that women are acting for the patriarchy, for the most part. It means that they're making decisions on, on behalf of a patriarchal whole and their femininity almost has nothing to do with it. In some ways, I think that a man can work on behalf of the feminine if he's occupying a different kind of position than a woman who's acting for the status quo. So we find ourselves in a very complicated situation in which we see the female holder of office as being the step forward. And I don't see that. Sometimes I see the worst actors on behalf of the patriarchy being women <laughs> who are doing so unwittingly or, or wittingly. Interesting. So in a way, you mean that nowadays the representative of the real people in power might be a woman, but she's still representing the interests of, in particular, men who would actually have the majority of the money and be kind of behind the scenes pushing for a lot of the choices that they make and a lot of the things that they do. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you say you see the same things on a microcosmic level. So, you know, I'm at a university. If if I'm not pushing for my female counterparts or diversity as a whole, and I'm there just to get power for myself, and I'm working in the patriarchy in my neoliberal university that's as attached to corporate inequality as anything else, then I'm not changing anything. The question is, how do you change the system from the inside? out and, and create a new human system for female power. We've never had that in the world. I would say that the only time humans have ever really had that is in some, not all, in some hunter-gatherer societies. A hunter-gatherer society like the Tongva people of Southern California, where I am sitting right now, these people fished in rivers and a woman who was breastfeeding or pregnant or with a baby on her back could pull in almost as many fish as the man next to her. That equated to equal power, almost equal power within the elders council. And they had a very different kind of political power here among the Tongva of Southern California. The money and the scarce resources are what creates power. When women start to bring in as many scarce resources as men, then we'll start to be able to talk about a human society that's not necessarily a patriarchy. What you're talking about now reminds me of what happens towards the end of your book, what happens when Hatshepsut dies, that after I think it was 22 years being king, her legacy, not right away, but is later dismantled. And not only that, the role of women in power in Egypt is greatly diminished for generations after her, actually. It seemed like it created a I don't know, a shock reaction in the opposite direction. And I think that you can see that today. I think that you can see the pushback against female power today. You can see a belittlement of feminism. People are afraid to say it. They call it the F word as if it's something to be afraid of. And indeed it is because women are punished for trying to claim this power. 
gay people are punished. The LGBTQ community has seen an extraordinary pushback as well. The black community in the United States, my God, has seen an extraordinary pushback against power. So when a minority gains power and people see it, sometimes you have to realize it may take four, five, seven, 20 years, but the pushback will be extraordinary. And there will be a yearning for good old fashioned conservative values, going back to the way things were to make America great again. And that is exactly what we are living through now. We have the pushback against the Obama presidency, but a pushback against the year of the woman in the 90s, a pushback against all kinds of things. There, For each step forward, there's probably a pushback with twice as much force by that organic patriarchy in return. And Hatshepsut teaches us that, that what we're going through is nothing new, that this happened 4,000 years ago before us, and it happened with Cleopatra. It happens every time that somebody takes power who is um, not meant to take power within the patriarchal system. That is perceived of as a threat, and people are made immoral through it. And morality and ideology are extraordinarily important in taking that power back. So Hatshepsut is not just erased, her statues are smashed, as if she had done something very, very deeply wrong, troubling, aberrant. And we still look at her and say, oh my God, she she showed herself as a man. She's a cross-dresser, she's transgender. She's this aberrant and strange person. Cleopatra, we look on as an absolute slut, a woman that took two good Roman generals and twisted them and turned them with her immorality and her grabbiness towards power. The moral push against these women is vital. It's what the patriarchal power uses to maintain their system. And that power can be used religiously. It can be just a moral shaming. But I think you'll see in the United States today that we have a president whose morality is deeply questionable. And yet no one can shame him because he is of the patriarchy. Now, you imagine if a woman tried to get away with the sexual proclivities that the president of the United States does, there is no way (laughs) that she would not be excoriated and driven from office. But a man is in some ways lauded for that. It is amongst many people in the United States right now who yearn for that patriarchal, you know, old way. What President Trump does, the way he treats women, the way he shows his overt masculinity is exactly what they want. Does this make sense? Yeah, it it makes a lot of sense. So you could see Tutmos III and then his son Amenhotep II as that movement back towards that patriarchy. And it's interesting when Tutmos III and Amenhotep II have power on their own, they push the females out of office. You know, I told you that incest was something that the Egyptians used as a strategy of power. Well, Tutmos III and Amenhotep II did not. They were strategically moving away from incest and choosing women whom they could control because they had been controlled by women in their family for so long. They decided to prioritize that beautiful girl who came from the provinces and learned to control that woman in a different way and gave up on their sisters, mothers, and, and daughters. There was too much power there. So at the point after Hatshepsut dies, then her nephew takes over and he doesn't try and continue the incest. He's more interested in just having children. He may have actually married his half-sister 
Nefrure. And he may have had her as his great royal wife for some years. This is a hard thing to talk about, because if he did, traces of it have been very well removed, chiseled away, destroyed and smashed. So we can't even see it. But it would make perfect sense that Nefrure was a very, very important person in his court. He probably had children with her. He probably had sons with her. And that's why the other reason Hatshepsut had to be removed, because Amenhotep II, his chosen son as next king, was not connected to Nefrure and was quite mm-hmm. young. And Tutmos III had been on the throne for some time already. He would have had adult sons whom he could have chosen as king. Instead, he picked a boy who was so young and so inexperienced that he needed to put him on the throne alongside him while he was still king in another co-kingship. And he probably did that because he was going around and over the sons from Nefere, those incestuous products. That was such a strong pushback that it mm -hmm. really was generations that they were Mm -hmm. trying to push out Hatshepsut's children. And what happened to Hatshepsut's grandchildren? We don't know. Were they destroyed in some way as well? Did they lose their positions or did they just have to shut up and be quiet and deal with it as they saw their grandmother's statues smashed into tiny bits? We will never know. And an authoritarian regime will not suffer us to know because if those men had said anything, then they would have been utterly removed as well. And so we we will see no evidence of that. The Egyptians aren't going to talk about those kinds of court intrigues. And yet, despite their attempts to erase her from records, we do know quite a bit about her and that she was an innovative builder and that she, for instance, brought over live trees from another city, that she was responsible for the first live tree transplant in the world. Yeah, I don't know about the first live tree transplant in the world, but it's the first documented one. (laughs) Yeah. The roots of those trees are still to be found by archaeologists at her temple of millions of years at Dir al-Bahri. And those were incense trees, trees like where frankincense or myrrh comes from. And those trees likely came from down south, maybe Ethiopia, maybe Eritrea, maybe Yemen, um, maybe across the Red Sea. And those trees were incredibly valuable to her because that myrrh was used for mummification and preserving a body, but it was also used for cleaning teeth. In fact, I use uh, myrrh essential oil every time I brush my teeth. I put a few drops on my toothbrush and then some powder and I brush my teeth with myrrh oil. It's good for your gums, very antibacterial, anti-cavity. I mean, it's amazing stuff. Yeah. Huh? What do you think happened to her mommy? Because as I understand, we talked about this before the interview began, but I didn't record it. So where do you think her final resting place is or could be found, Kara? There are many bodies that could be identified as Hatshepsut's mummy. The one that was identified in a Discovery television show about 15, 16 years ago Most Egyptologists whom I know do not believe that to be Hatshepsut's mummy. That was identified by Zahi Hawass using a tooth in a canopic box and connecting that to a space in a particular mummy and saying that that tooth matched. He published that information in a JAMA article, Journal of the American Medical Association, and you can find it online pretty easily. It's a very short article. The problem with that identification, and there are some Egyptologists who hold to it, but I do not, is that There was never given any 
indices for the size and shape of that tooth and how it fit into the skull could have been done digitally and I've never seen it done digitally and mummies lose teeth all the time it's a rough process so I, I'm not convinced that that that's the the mummy of Hatshepsut and the, the other reason I'm not convinced is because the mummy is quite old and I think Hatshepsut's age of death would have been younger her lifetime shows uh, less time on this earth and that mummy would died at 60, 70 years of age, that one that was identified, that mummy also doesn't have a removal of the brain. And it's not a very well mummified specimen in comparison to what you would expect for the 18th uh, dynasty king's mummies that we have preserved to us. These mummies were very well mummified and well preserved. And I don't, I think that there are other better candidates for Hatshepsut's mummy. It's an interesting thing that we have all of these other king's mummies preserved and marked. We have second Enre Tao of Dynasty 17, Ahmose of Dynasty 18, Amenhotep I of Dynasty 18, Thomas III, and on and on. But we don't have Hatshepsut identified, which means that there was a problem even with the maintenance of her mummy. And one wonders what happened to her when the Valley of the Kings was ransacked and systematically looted in the 21st dynasty did they did they get rid of her mummy did they treat it with without respect or did they save it or keep it but not mark it in some way it's not clear what happened to her mummy in my opinion so it's still an ongoing mystery yeah yeah something to to be solved but you know for me that's something that i'm not going to jump into that's not a research question that i will be asking I like to ask research questions that I can potentially answer and that are applicable to my own world. If I put my heart and soul and my lifetime into identifying the mummy of Hatshepsut, then I will have identified the mummy of Hatshepsut, but it's not going to help me to understand mm -hmm. the system mm -hmm. that we're a part of. And she won't teach me anything. I'll find her body, but I won't find any of her secrets to power. So mm. I would rather ask different research questions and <laughs> encourage my graduate students to do the same. <laughs> Do you think she could have had any children while she was co-king? She could have. You know, Catherine the Great had children that she had to hide with her husband. It was somehow not considered um, something that she was supposed to be doing. And, and there were children that she didn't talk about. You could look for other examples. You know, Elizabeth I, did she have abortions? Did she take abortifactants when she was queen? We have no idea. Hatshepsut could easily have had a lover. Any lover she wanted, she could easily have had children. But in that position, she felt that she could not mark them as her own. And we see no trace of them. It's an interesting issue. Well, I guess that makes it clear that even though her blood was, let's say, purer than her nephews or more royal, nevertheless, she could not have been the one to continue the line because she was a woman. Yeah. Her blood was pure and purer than her husband's when she was the great royal wife. As soon as she stepped into the position of king, it became problematic because there was already a king on the throne. And maybe she knew that if she tried to compete with his lineage and create a parallel competitive lineage alongside him by having a son, that that would have blown Egypt up from the inside out. You know, Elizabeth I knew this. She knew she couldn't marry at all. She became the virgin wow. queen for a reason. She knew that she had to fit the patriarchy so much that she erased all traces of her sexuality, did not marry, and did not have any children whatsoever when she became queen. So that power, that mantle of power, 
is so onerous. It is it is um, so heavy. And the price, very yeah, high. Yeah, that she had to give that price. She had to pay with her sexuality, and it, it was so fraught to keep her power. She couldn't invite a man in either. Hatshepsut knew this as well. If she had a child with another man, that man's going to try to take her power. Elizabeth knew that any husband of hers would try to take her power. So to maintain what she had, they both had to erase their sexuality and masculinize completely. Wow. When you think of it like that, you see how much they had to sacrifice in order to have any power. What lessons do you think are most important for women in the world today to learn from Hatshepsut and her lifetime? I think that, number one, women need to learn to recognize the patriarchy and learn whose agenda they are working for. And it is almost certainly a patriarchal agenda in my case as well. Number two, they need to realize what they are going to have to give up if they want to have power. If you want to have four kids and have a lot of power, that's probably going to be really difficult negotiation for you to make. I have one child and I had to time him just right and have him quite late in my life at the age of 38, as opposed to, to earlier when I would have had more energy and spunk, you know, I'm, I'm exhausted <laughs> through the nights as a, like, and I'm raising my kid practically as a grandparent. A lot of women in upper middle class society, educated women have children quite late in their late 30s and early 40s, and they have one instead of having three or four. They have to have outside care. So you have to put your kid in, in daycare earlier and not care for that kid yourself as much as you would want to. It's the same as getting a wet nurse in Hatshepsut's day, you know, not breastfeeding as long, though I did breastfeed my kid for two years. That's kind of crazy. Oh, um, so good for them. Yeah, though breast milk is the most toxic food on the planet. Look it up. But anyway, <laughs> humans are full of all kinds of heavy metals, yeah. but it's still better than a bottle. It is. There are extraordinary negotiations that a woman has to make. What I would encourage all women who are, and men, who want to change the system to do is to look around with a very critical eye and note that it's not just the inhabitor of a position that creates the position. There is no sisterhood. We need to create a sisterhood. Let me put it this way, if, and I, I say this in my talks a lot, if you are a black person and you see a black person acting against your people, you have a name for that person. You can call that person an Uncle Tom. You can call that person a Clarence Thomas. You know, there, there are names that you can apply. But we have no name for a woman who acts against her sisterhood because we don't have a sisterhood. We only have names for women who are maligned by the patriarchy. Jezebel, Cleopatra, that woman who acts immorally, supposedly. But we need to build a sisterhood and learn to support each other rather than competing with each other. And in my own life, and my own work, I see the patriarchy creating more feminine competition than it creates feminine support. And how does this affect what you're doing in the future? It almost sounds like you should be running for politics. <laughs> no, no. I'm a historian. I need to I need to stay here. And I'm just well, going to continue to... You can't know the future to, if you don't know the no, that, Yeah, maybe. But um, I'll continue to write all of these books and to let these women, in a sense, speak through me. Let them tell their stories so that we can understand we're not as special and advanced as we think we are. We're doing all the same things that these Egyptians did before us. And it's time that we wake up and realize that we're no different from them. 
but we need to learn lessons from the past to be able to transcend and to change. I could not agree with you more. And I love how you said that you let them tell their stories through you. Yeah, it's quite a privileged place to be, to be able to see the world around me best through the lens of this ancient place. I don't know why, but it's the truth. So now I have to use it to let them, in a sense, speak through me. It sounds almost metaphysical, but I like it. I like it too. And you're right. There's so much information that they had access to. They were so advanced in so many ways. And I think we have different information. We definitely have, you know, brilliant modern ways of communicating and doing things. But certainly there's so much value in what the people prior to us learned and experienced and lived through and can save us some some pain, perhaps, if we learn what they learned. Yeah, it's true. It's true. (laughs) Well, Kara, I have taken more than an hour of your time at this point. It was such a privilege, such an honor, and just like the best thing ever for me to (laughs) speak to you for the last hour. You're so clear in the way you speak. Your voice is so beautiful. It's so strong, and you're so articulate. So I think I learned so much in this last hour. I need to Good thing is I will listen to it many times as I edit it so I can hopefully learn some of it. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome back anytime. Okay, great. (laughs) Okay, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. You can read more about Kara and contact her on her personal website, karacooney.squarespace.com, spelled out. K-A-R-A-C-O-O-N-E-Y dot S-Q-U-A-R-E-S-P-A-C-E dot com or on her UCLA profile, which I will link to directly on the show notes at beautyiseternal.com. I will also link to her latest books, When Women Rule the World, as well as, of course, The Woman Who Would Be King.